All right, Alex, glad to finally meet. We've had a couple uh, misconnections, but we finally did it. Glad to have you here. Yeah, as one does. Yeah, no, it's great to, great to finally be connected, Ruan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I love your podcast. I actually specifically love that you got into Anabasis recently. Um, I've been reading it. I'm maybe, I'm, I think like 60% through, so I think your, your episodes have caught up or passed where, I, where I've read to. Uh, so that's been great. Um, nice. So I think I first found out about you maybe a year ago. I think you contributed to Man's World. That's right. Broad yeah. Natural, yeah. <clears throat> and I couldn't find your article, actually, but I was in their Telegram group and I saw a list of names coming up and I saw Ancient Life Coach and I was like, well, that's, that's just an interesting name. So I looked up your website and serendipitously, I, I either had just started uh, Parallel Lives or I had just downloaded with the intention. So it just felt like, nice. okay, cool. So um, you actually helped me skip over Lysander a little faster than actually reading the whole thing. Um, so I think the, the concept is fascinating, but could you share a little bit how you went from academia to this ancient life coach concept and, and podcasting, of course? Yeah, certainly. So I, I'll just tell a story that kind of illustrates a lot of what is my motivation. So I, was in a um a lecture hall i i well i was lecturing at the university of california san diego as a lecturer and i wanted like tips from a colleague on like how i was doing and so i invite this colleague to come watch my, my lectures one of these big you know 80 person lecture halls and i'm talking about athenian politics like ancient classical athens their political demography not demography, but like the, basically the way that they gerrymandered the voting and the reforms of Cleisthenes in the fifth century, kind of an interesting moment in Athenian history. And I'm telling this, this uh, well, essentially a story to the students about how Cleisthenes had this idea to reorient the political map of Athens with uh, you know, mixing the men from the hills and the men from the plains and the men from the mountains and making them all kind of vote together with these people that they don't share interest with and blocks. But I also told this story about Cleisthenes, the man and his times and his relationship with Pisistratus, the tyrant and the kind of um, this lurid tale of two possibly homosexual lovers murdering the tyrant's son. And, you know, the, the kids were just like on the edge of their seat. And uh, the point is, I, after this lecture, I uh, talked to my colleague about, you know, well, how did I do? And she said, well, this was good. This is good. Uh, but there's a little too much narrative. And, um, and I was like, yeah, no, you're right. I should probably do less narrative next time. And I, you know, it was striking to me because I knew exactly what she was talking about because, you know, modern historians are, they think of themselves as being supposed to, you know, be doing more analysis and looking at the data. It's like almost like the point of history now is deconstructing narratives rather than actually making them. And there's so much less focus on that craft. And I, uh, to me, that summed up like a disconnect in academia between what people actually wanted out of history and how people actually process history and like what it's for and what we think that we're doing when we do history, um, which I think there's just a really big disconnect there. And, and I, I, I left what seemed like in other eras might start to be a promising career in academia. I had a tenure track job and it was one that I liked and, you know, friends were saying, Oh, it's a good start a job. And, but, um, you know, I left because I wanted to connect what I did better with what people were interested in. And I thought that the longer I stayed in academia, the more I would kind of get stuck in these old thought patterns. Well, new really, but you know, outdated or not even outdated, just the, wasn't the thought pattern I wanted to get stuck in as, as far as like connecting this really inspiring ancient material with what people actually need today. Mm-hmm. So, so that, and then I, you know, th- there's a longer story behind that, but that's the basic. That's principle. interesting because, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the original academies were kind of designed to prepare people to just be really awesome in life, right? 
And I've, I mean, I'm kind of hearing from you, but I've heard from many other former professors that academia has certain um, norms that are all about something that maybe isn't exactly making you a better person. Yeah. Yeah. Academia comes from the, the name comes from this field outside the walls of Athens where Plato eventually decided to found a school and he's sort of like, and then they called it the Academy after that Plato's school, because by uh, metonymy, it was in the academia, but yeah, his first students were like well, almost all of his students were like going off and wanting to become generals or politicians and Plato's uh, context, the context in which philosophy like is birthed is this really uh, exciting foment of intellectual entrepreneurs trying to pitch what they've got to practical people who want an edge in the game that they already care about, which is glory, which is war in politics and maybe a little bit of business. But, um, and so philosophy has always, uh, for, like in that moment, it's, there is the kind of, uh, disinterested truth, the kind of like study of the heavens, but the bulk of it is, is very much in the ancient, in, in the ancient world in general, but the bulk of it is really about can this improve your life? Can this make you happier? Eudaimonia, right? This Greek concept of happiness. It's, it's every philosophical schools that says we can make you happier. And then they just have different answers as to how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so, and we've, that's just not, that's not really like what people plausibly go to college for now. I think there are some lofty words used now, but I think we've pretty, pretty thoroughly lost track of that. And that was frustrating to me for sure. Yeah, you know, I, actually, I was a philosophy major for almost a full semester. But then after, before the semester was over, I was like, this is not going to help me win at life. So I switched to business. But I don't know, honestly, looking back, and it might have been the school I went to, I probably would have actually gotten more out of it than just like, you know, the marketing classes that really were outdated that I took. I only know my, my experience. But um, yeah, <laughs> that, that was that. Yeah, uh, interesting. Wait, so how did you get into podcasting? From there. Yeah. Well, I got into audio in, I guess, around 2017. I took this long road trip from uh, the East Coast to the West Coast. I was moving out to the West Coast with my wife, and we didn't have any kids then. So nice. So we took this long drive, and we listened to um, East of Eden, John Steinbeck. I was like, let's listen to like a great American novel. And we listened to this whole novel on this trip and I was like, wow, there's, uh, I didn't really give audiobooks credit. And so I started realizing that audio was its own genre, that it's different from a book that it's like, so I, I started really getting into audiobooks. I listened to Moby Dick and, uh, middle March and there's some just incredible performers out there and it just really changes the experience. And, and this is, I connected this with, I was researching ancient uh, reading practices for my dissertation and um, the way that most ancient uh, audience members for books even experienced the texts that we know and love is through the ear. There, there were live readings. Writing was clunky and it was difficult to read um, often in, in all caps. And it was just like a, a lot more labor intensive to get the text to, to, to meaning. And so what you would often do is just get together and somebody would like, you know, volunteer to be, um, the person who reads the thing out loud, or you could have your slave do it. Plenty, plenty talks about this, like specially trained slaves will just read, read books for you even while you're hunting. Um, and, and so I was like, wow, this is, we're kind of, re-entering a great oral aural moment because of this technology. And it's going to be very different, obviously. Um, and so I got interested in it a, a while ago, but I didn't really have a, a podcast idea until I actually had to leave academia before I could kind of put together what I thought people would, would want. And, um, and so um, the idea for a podcast came to me partly because um, you know, well, 
I was listening to a lot of podcasts. I eventually made that 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 jump, but you know, I I wanted to kind of bring this material to people. I was thinking about doing a blog because I was working on this, and this was going to just be a side project that I hoped would eventually turn into a big project. But I was thinking, should I do a blog? Yeah, writing is a pain in the butt, and uh, it's hard to you know get discovered. Should I do? you know, YouTube channel. Well, I suck at video and, uh, and then the podcast kind of came up and well, what, what, you know, maybe I can participate in this great audio revolution. And, uh, and Plutarch's lives were just like the most ambitious, daunting, daring kind of thing that I could do to like retell these things, because I don't think that they're really great as audiobooks. They're great to read, but kind of dense. Um, just a little too dense for audio, I thought. And so that was the genesis of the idea and took it from there. And were you into personal development already or was life coach just like, oh, that's a good search term to yeah. have, or it sounds cool. <laughs> I mean, it did get me to click on it and look you up. So. Right. <laughs> I, I made this connection in the, when I was writing my dissertation on, on the, basically I wrote my dissertation on decentralized intellectual uh networks in the roman empire and i was looking at the earlier philosophers and i just kept thinking gosh these guys are nothing like academics today they are much more like a tony robbins or you know any number of people today like a pu just public intellectuals just pitching their stuff and getting followings and figuring out what works for them they're not like in a system there's no phds there's no credentials it's all who you know and can your words stand on their own? And so I made this connection that basically ancient philosophers are more like life coaches than scientists for the for the most part. And so that kind of that's where the name comes from. And I, I'm just interested mm -hmm. in this concept. Um, and uh, I'm, I forgot the question at that point. Maybe yeah, but where, where the life coach thing came from? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. so funny and because I, and I was into personal development at that point. Uh, but go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying that uh, on a few different levels, I've come from the opposite direction. Like I've been working in personal development a long time. And then the last couple of years, I don't know if it's having a family or just being older, but like the places where I get my personal development lessons are these ancient texts more than anything. But then also when I read, like right now I'm reading um, some, some texts by uh, feudal Japanese samurai, uh, Hakukure, if you're familiar, and of cool. course... Uh, Mushashi's writings mm -hmm. and I'm and when I read them and this is when I read any ancient text I think this is basically an unedited, unedited blog post right like writing was so slow you know people came across such little content that he could you know he could write what all these random things that today would have been edited out and I think you know the book I'm reading now Hagakure most of it would have gotten lost in the internet if you wrote like this he could only write at a time where people only came across one book a year or something where people like, you know, and it's just so funny. And I do feel this about even spiritual texts that a lot of them are kind of like productivity blog posts that yeah. were just extended because the guy, you know, time was slower back then essentially. Yeah. And like Xenophon, for example, would, would never have become a popular author today. There's too many details, you know, it's just like, they're writing in this world where people don't have their attention divided so much. And, um, yeah, I, I think I, I definitely get a lot out of the ancient texts as far as personal development. And I got more interested in personal development too. kind of, I can relate like when my first child, my daughter was born in 2017 and it just like completely revolutionized so many things, uh, about, is my approach to life and content consumption. Um, and, you know, I think that that's like most audiences that our ancient authors are writing for are in that fatherhood, high responsibility um, kind of phase of life. So there is just a whole lot of emphasis on, not on entertainment, but like entertainment with some, with some takeaways, with some insights for you to help you whatever win your law case or, uh, you know, mm -hmm. defeat your enemy in town. Yeah. Uh, a buddy of mine who's also a young father sent me a tweet. I forget by who I'm not on Twitter. So he filters for Twitter for me. <laughs> <laughs> I need that. <laughs> yeah. He said something like, uh, 
every man reaches an age where he has to choose between getting really into World War II history or learning how to smoke meat. And it's just the, the joke that you get into like dad hobbies. And I thought about it a lot because both he and I got into history in our early 30s. And I, it was never, not that I wasn't into it before, but I never would have given like the attention to read Herodotus like, you know, as a 20-something. And I've wondered like what this is. Is it that like our testosterone declines so that like we're not into the dopamine rushes as much and now we have the attention span? I'm not sure what it is, but I'm actually curious if you have any thoughts on that that idea. Yeah, I don't know. I, I've definitely gotten more into history as I've gotten older in a way. And um, my earlier academic career, I was much more doing philosophy and trying to learn as many languages as I could. And I just... I spun my wheels a lot having a lot of fun that I wish I had spent more productively but yeah and and I think it's also maybe the fact that you realize at some point that um that what is really gonna give you what you need for the next task is can somebody else's experience condensed that I I for me at least just I, I read a lot of personal development books and um, and a lot of the best ones just tell a lot of stories and the the power of story story is really the the original self development genre in my opinion that this is mm-hmm. mostly how people got what they needed and got their like shot of energy or ah oh, now I can solve this problem mostly people have gotten that through storytelling for however many tens and hundreds of thousands of years. So I think that maybe you start to filter out what is really valuable the older you get. I guess. I also feel like, and I'm only speaking from my own experience, but becoming a father kind of connects you to your own lineage, like you're making life. So like history just seems way more appealing than anything contemporary. It's like the father's fathers, et cetera, you know? Yeah, you start to get interested in like legacy all of Mm -hmm. a sudden. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned Xenophon, uh, who's Xenophon and Brasidas. For some reason, those are my two, like my favorite Greek, <laughs> Greek characters that I've read of recently. Yeah. Um, and okay. So Anabasis, I, I stopped reading it because he does go into a lot of details, yeah. as you mentioned. But so, so does like almost every writer from back then. I actually found Anabasis, though, aside from the huge chunks of details that most people would cut out nowadays, it does kind of read similarly to a World War One or World War Two memoir. Like he goes into personal experience in a way that I haven't, you know, I haven't read that many ancient texts, but it seems uncommon. Uh, I was wondering if you knew more about that or why that might be, or was he just ahead of his time as a storyteller? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, what what definitely pre-exists Xenophon uh, is history as a genre. Herodotus and Thucydides both before him. There's actually a story that Thucydides, who wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta, uh, that he would have, that that basically Xenophon had a copy of Thucydides, that Thucydides gave it to him, and then Xenophon published it. And it's because of Xenophon, because Thucydides dies in the middle of writing the Peloponnesian War, it's not polished at the end. And that because of Xenophon, Thucydides is, you know, this famous Greek author uh, posthumously. And Xenophon wrote a continuation of Thucydides, his, his Hellenica. Um, so what you don't, I don't see a lot of like first person memoirs. And Xenophon even writes about himself in the third person in the, yeah. in the analysis. <laughs> he introduces himself like pretty late in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it's, and it's, uh, and, you know, it, I think it's pretty funny the way that he, that he writes about himself in the third person. But and I don't know, Xenophon is also, um, you know, he's he's a student of Socrates, and there's just a lot of innovation going on around Socrates, literary innovation. Plato is one of the greatest literary innovators uh, of antiquity. And um, Xenophon is also an important figure for me as a... Um, because in my podcast, you know, like, I basically what I'm doing is retelling Plutarch's biographies. And, you know, so I think a lot about what what the genre of biography is. And Xenophon is one of the first, arguably the first person to write a biography in the Western tradition. Uh, he, it's actually his Agesilaus, which is this biography of um, 
well, the, the King of Sparta that I'm just releasing a series on right now. He didn't write a Cyropedia before that he, about Cyrus. Yeah, he wrote that, but that's more of a. It's like a, a, a more of like a novel or something. It's it's mm. it's fictional. It's semi-fictional. It's based on historical events, but it's not like, um, like a, aspiring to be a true account of this actual person's life. Because, yeah, but um, so. Yeah, he and he wrote a book about hunting with dogs. He wrote a bunch of different stuff, but um, I think Agesilaus was probably one of his latest works because he wrote it after the king died, and he died shortly after Agesilaus when he was like 80. Mm -hmm. uh, so I want to go back to something you said uh, much earlier. You are speaking about academia and this idea of objective history versus what I've often seen as a criticism of, say, Herodotus, where he's obviously spinning a narrative and... A lot of histories from then like involve the gods and what the gods did, etc. Versus what maybe was the point that I think you were pointing to of stories to help us win at life, be happy or whatever. And I, I'm wondering now, as having been in academia, actually having been in both worlds, what do you think about that? And also, actually, I think recent culture has shown us how actually difficult it is to come to an objective truth. So it's almost like, this is my, my addition, that you almost might as well pick a narrative that works functionally. Mm -hmm. Curious your thoughts. Yeah, Herodotus is a really interesting figure. He's kind of in this tradition of Homer in some sense, because the beginning of Herodotus, he talks about the Trojan War as like the early... People talk about the conflict between the Persians and the Greeks, because, you know, the whole history is really about the Persian war for Herodotus, the Greeks and the, and the Persians. And people talk about the Persian war and the, the trying to get the, the origin, the origins of the conflict between East and West. And they, they go back to Troy, you know, the Greeks conquering the Trojans and the, maybe the Persians conquering the Greeks was, or trying to was like payback for this. But, um, so he's writing this commemorative tradition of Homer in a way where, like the goal is to tell this amazing story about great men. And, you know, people believed maybe not that Homer was telling the exact factual truth, but that Achilles was a real person and um, like Agamemnon's a real person and the Trojan War really happened on some level. So the point is like bringing out glory of great men. So there is this ethical part of Herodotus, I think, but it kind of recedes into the background because what, what he's trying to do in the histories really is, um, is tell a story that reflects that is like fair enough to the very multipolar perspectives, uh, that you have on the Persian war. So the Persians have their own story to tell about, the Greek, the, the conflict with the Greeks. He's mostly interested in, in the various Greek stories. And there's a lot of different Greek stories about what happened in the Persian war that the Spartans have their own version of the narrative where the 300 at Thermopylae is this incredibly important, you know, um, our finest moment event, our finest hour. The Athenians have their own version, the battle of, uh, Artemisium, the battle of Salamis, the Thebans have their own story. It's a lot of justification because they, they ended up kind of collaborating with the Persians very early on. So, and, and the thing is, like, in the Greek world, they're always bringing up history with, a with a, like, a special interest, like at their peace conferences or their, you know, negotiations about war. They're always, like, telling the story about the past to justify why, they, you know, why Athens should control this land and not Thebes or vice versa. And, and so I think somebody like Herodotus is writing first of all for a for a, a audience of many different Greeks you know because the Greek world is just you know dozens hundreds of different independent cities that all have their own agenda and he's writing for all of them he wants he wants his his story to kind of spread as far as possible and so he has to have that attempt at objectivity and you see this in him he's like well I, I've consulted these different stories and this is the one that I think is the most plausible um, and um, and so what he's not trying to do is give just an objective, disinterested account of reality. Like the, the the goal, I think, is still there, though. Like glorifying the people who deserve glory, inspiring men with great deeds, and there is a kind of 
there's an ethical aspect that's kind of below the surface. It's a much more on the front in biography, which comes from a different tradition. But um, yeah, I think we could stand, we could, we could do worse than to get back to the Herodotian tradition. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the, yeah, the, I guess, difficulty of finding objectivity in history? I mean, we know the winners write history, et cetera. And I'm not sure exactly what my question is, but I do want to relate this to modern day, <laughs> I guess, the culture wars. I mean, yeah. come up with something more specific. Yeah. Well, uh, it, I think we, we don't really, objective facts aren't really useful to us in, unless they're put in a narrative and there's going to be some narrative that gets told about, you know, like say, say a riot happens somewhere and, uh, there's thousands of people involved in that and you could probably, if you went around and interviewed everybody involved in that riot, you would probably get at least 10 different categories of motivations. Like oh, I wanted to get some free stuff or F the police or the fascists or whoever, or the, you know, so, so like when a story gets told and condensed into something intelligible, you end up saying a mob came upon the city square because they were mad about X. And this simplification, because otherwise, you know, the, the, there's too much information for us to process. And so, you know, I think when it, the, like the bigger the event, the more impossible it is or the, the, to like find anything objective that's actually useful. This is usefulness and objectivity. Like, mm -hmm. can you, can you understand what happened in the space of like five minutes versus spending, you know, like doing a whole dissertation on this, you know, some riot in Charlotte or something like that's one of our like fundamental problems that we're stuck between. Yeah. I guess to, to make it match all perspectives, it has to be abstract. Like you can't possibly have a concrete experience that fits multiple angles. Yeah. And the best you can do is try to tell some of the representative perspectives, um, you know, you know, try to tell fairly at least the perspective of the people that you disagree with. Um, and that's really hard actually. Uh, and we don't really do that. We don't really train people to do that in college. Unfortunately, that's what critical thinking should be like just telling a good story from the perspective of the other person, which is something that they trained you to do in ancient rhetoric. Um, but we, we don't actually do that. We, 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 we spend more time deconstructing narratives than like trying to construct plausible ones that we disagree with, which is much more useful of a skill actually. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I want to ask you about masculinity because all of all of these histories that we're talking about were written by men, presuming a male audience. A lot of the suggestions when it comes to what we could call personal development now are kind of like wrapped up in being a man. Some people, uh, if I'm forgetting whom, but I, I guess Xenophon actually speaks about, you know. Uh, Clearchus did this and therefore he was a greater, it's all about masculinity underneath yeah. the surface. And I'm assuming your audience is probably mostly male. I mean, it seems that guys are way more into history for whatever so. reason. Um, so I, I am curious about what you have seen as far as, actually I lost my, my question to be honest, but this has been touching, you know, I got stuck on Greece, basically, in my History of Man podcast, mainly because of the Spartans. Yeah, I knew a little, I knew what everyone knows about Sparta. But once I really read about Lycurgus and basically how Sparta was designed as kind of a, a men's development system, right? Like everything, the whole society was built around men being hyper male. Curious your thoughts, uh, and maybe if it ever shows up in, I know you're not directly speaking to men, but I know you've written for Man's World. Curious if you have anything to add about this. Yeah, so it's funny you got stuck on the Greeks. I, I got stuck on the Greeks too. I thought I would, uh, <laughs> when I was an undergrad, I was like, I'm gonna read all the great books and I'm just gonna do like a semester two on Greece and a semester two on Rome, then I'm gonna medieval, and then I just got stuck in antiquity. Uh, there's just so much there. but. Yeah, well, the thing that everybody will probably tell you is arete, the Greek word for virtue, for excellence, is etymologically connected with 
anair with arain with the greek word for man so there and the is word virtue as well and virtus in latin too yeah yeah people know about vir and virtus but it's true in greek too and also the word for courage is just literally manliness in greek andrea anair andros is man and andrea is courage in greek so which is the 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 most important virtue for like not if you if you go outside the philosophical schools where they they talk about the four virtues you know courage justice moderation well the most important one for everybody agrees is is courage it's the foundation and uh, it's a highly militarized society it's one of the reasons i think the greeks are so fascinating is because they're in this um, they're having to like live life like ancient men really ancient men constantly fighting so all right virtue is gendered clearly in greek and it's it's tilted toward the world of men public public world i think sparta is fascinating and still inspires me with ideas that we can use for our education system maybe not everything sparta was really inspiring to the the prussians who eventually you know bequeathed a very highly functioning state to the nazis uh, but it, it it really is so so the Spartan education system, as you know, and maybe your listeners know this, but just to summarize, it's called the Ago Gay, and they get boys at an age of seven, uh, and seven to eighteen, you're in this um, just intensive training system that make you you learn to fight, you learn to sleep outside in in the cold and in the heat. You learn to steal. You learn to steal your food. There's strict, strict age hierarchies. The older boys, like the people who punished the the infractions, are it's not like the teacher. It's the older boy. So at every level, you're learning. You're you can get punished by an older boy, but you're also responsible for enforcing the rules for the younger boys. And this creates this like intense rigid hierarchy and also like it produces in the spartans this this great respect for age they have a lot of deference to their elders and maybe you could argue that maybe they have too much deference for their elders aristotle thinks that um but i think like i there there's so much about our education system that flies in the face of greek values and like what they thought would produce arete manliness in other words, virtue, um, well, arete is not manliness literally, but excellence. What they thought would produce arete uh, looks very, very different from what we have and what we kind of see as the priority of our education system. And I'm not even sure that like, culturally we've worked that out. Um, but that's that's definitely like really always at the front of my consciousness when I'm writing this stuff is like, you know, what is, how do, how do we order a society around excellence? Um, and they, the Greeks debate about that too, constantly. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. In, in my last uh, history of man podcast where, where I actually got stuck on the Peloponnesian war, uh, I was, it was actually supposed to be just the section of episode three, but then I, I just loved uh, Thucydides so much that, Continued. I did make the argument that, and maybe this is an obvious one, and maybe you disagree, or I'm not sure, but uh, that Western society, the left and right, kind of can be traced back to the Peloponnesian War. Like so much of conservative America, for instance, not only seems very similar to Sparta, but they even use like Molan Labe as the Second Amendment like slogan, for instance. And then if you look at the left leaning side of the United States, let's say, it is all, I mean, most of our modern society is Athenian, it's democratic, et cetera, and it seems to be trending that way. Uh, culture, Western culture seems to trend towards the left with some corrections periodically. Um, one, I guess, I'm uh, curious on what you th think about that idea, but I also want to bring up the idea of, um, you may be familiar with this meme, reject, reject, moder reject modernity, embrace masculinity, I might be getting it wrong, but it's this meme that's become very popular in Generation Z, comparing like hyperbolic images of like ancient Spartans and bodybuilders with, say, some of the extreme left going on. 
Sorry, I, I'm getting distracted. There are golf ball size pieces of hail falling on my roof right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's probably fine. You're in Austin, right? <laughs> uh, Houston. Houston, okay. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I heard you guys had unexpected snow not long ago. Yeah, yeah, but this is big hail. It was just like, what is happening around? Okay. Yeah, probably fine. All right. So, so, um, oh, I'm sorry. Remind me where we were about. Okay, yeah, the left and the right. So, yes, it's it's definitely, you can definitely see a lot of left and right energy in Greek politics. And I think it's one of the things that's so interesting about it. But, um, like, in the Cold War, the funny enough like the, the the kind of narrative was more the u.s is athens and the soviets are sparta because look the, the u.s is free and capitalist and the, the soviets are collectivist and militaristic and there's a land power and the u.s is a sea power so kind of a, a, as you move through history your, your perspective kind of can shift in interesting ways but yeah i i think that well i think that same uh, idea seems similar with China US right now mm -hmm. where it seems like yeah. China maybe is the the tougher force in in certain theaters at least and they're like banning like like limiting video game hours and i don't know if they've banned porn yet and it's like this is going to make us effeminate yeah yeah basically uh, yeah yeah um so yeah and, and you see a lot of critiques of democracy. And in fact, most of our writers from antiquity that are, are kind of from, not from antiquity, but yeah, from antiquity in general, but especially from the Greek perspective, Greek writers like Plato and Xenophon are really critical of democracy, Athenians, you know? And, um, and there's always this polarity in Greek cities between the few and the many. And that's that's what I think of as the basic kind of right-left polarity inherent in human nature. That, that you know the the interest of the collective versus the interest of the kind of excellent individuals of the group, the interest of the employees versus the employers, and you know obviously in extremes it's like masters and slaves. But um, but and you know Plato can certainly like even you can even celebrate the. The, all the interesting characters you get in a democracy that you just don't get in Sparta. You don't get these kind of colorful characters, literally what he says. Um, but at the end of the day, Plato more puts, you know, sides more with the Spartan ideal in the Republic. Um, is that true, though, or is it partly because Spartans didn't write anything down? So we don't really know. Yeah, well, they didn't, and... And we do have these glimpses of early Sparta where there's a, like a lively musical culture. Uh, but I think in terms of the people that end up ruling in a society, um, the Athenians have a lot more business people and merchants and just a kind of more diverse power base among the elites. Um, and the, the Spartans, it's, it's like they've all been through the Agoge. And they're all like the only criterion of success is like commanding in the field successfully for the Spartans. Um, but even so, Athe Athenian democracy by our standards would be a fascist state, um, you know, with very limited citizenship, highly militarized, highly patriotic. Even so, like you got to take these things with a grain of salt. Um, but but, you know, I see I see it all over the place and um you know the the left right dynamic playing out and uh and Plato's Republic like still just spooky how how much he's really nailed what what like the values of democracy produce what kind of characters the values of democracy produce do you think that kind of left right or master slave thing is just inevitable cuz you could probably find it at every era in every society i think i think it is yeah and i think it needs in a healthy society, it, it needs checks. You need checks on the masters and checks on the, well, employees. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and they kind of balance each other out. It's like it's like one of these yin and yang things. But this just seems like an inevitability in any tribal group. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, I'm, I agree. Yeah. And, and, you know, it does seem that also uh, when the slaves or the underclass takes power, they just adopt the same exact characteristics. You know, they just switch from master or slave morality to master morality in each in terms. Yeah. Because that's the only way to keep power. Basically. Exactly. Somebody's got to occupy that slot. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and they adapt. People adapt. Yeah. So one thing, I think you mentioned it in one of your recent episodes uh, that the Spartans were great at home but not abroad am i remembering that correctly that's right yeah okay Mm -hmm. yeah so it's like uh you know these conservative values were great but really only in a very tight perimeter and uh that's perhaps why culture trends leftwards or towards you know the athenian style of governance yeah it's they were called lions at home and foxes abroad sometimes um and at home for them is not just like in their city, but like in the, in their, their natural environment, like the Spartan constitution is set up to, to master the Peloponnese, this peninsula that they're on. And when they get into Asia and when they get into the North, Northern Greece, where you get these exotic peoples and all these opportunities for getting rich quick, you know, the Spartans don't have any like coins at home. They trade in iron spits. They, it's like their system isn't really doesn't really have checks moral checks on those things or when they're the temptations are too great for them to maybe not slip into luxury but slip into some of them are criticized for slipping into luxury like the regent pausanias um and herodotus um but it's really true the athenians were a lot better at getting foreign powers on their side um and and getting like greek city states from all over the place on their side and spartan imperialism really works by controlling the elite cuz basically the, the sparta has this like magnetic effect on other greek city states where people see sparta not just as kind of like today people see it not just as um you know a military supreme power but as a model of how the good life should be for a city where you know the strongest men are taking the most responsibility and um and they have like an education system that really values virtue and success and you know you get these like demagogues uh you know leveraging the the interests of the mob to to clobber their their you know opponents and abusing the system like you often get in these democracies like Athens um so but you know the Athenians just um they're they're able to motivate larger sections of the populace in other cities to kind of side with them kind of like America has in the 20th century like the you know, beacon on a hill where where the leaders of the free world. You know, we have blue jeans and rock music. There's kind of some of that going on with the Athenians, and and one of their greatest ideological tools, a power tools. Uh, it's not the right word, but one of their greatest you know things that they can leverage in the in the in the imperialism game is their fascinating cultural. Uh, production is their education system you know pericles calls Athens the school of hellas because everybody's coming there for the that's where the philosophical schools are that's where the best drama shows are it's like going to broadway you go to athens for the lanaya and the guests can come and watch the the tragic shows where euripides and aristophanes are putting on their best stuff so that that like and that saves them in this excuse me in this important episode in history people kind of feel sorry for the athenians they don't want the athenians to get you know wiped off of the face of the earth after the spartans defeat them um and uh a lot of it has to do with the good good credit that they've built up culturally so um yeah it 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 definitely it's it's a big factor in greek history um this difficulty of exporting the best constitution you know uh which is Everybody agrees that it's Sparta, pretty much. Anybody who, who, who writes anything down agrees that Spartans have the best constitution, but they're not the people that you want to rule you because they tend to be, their, their form of rule just tends to be tyrannical when it's exported. 
um, yeah. Best constitution in terms of a stable home government? Yeah, yeah. And constitution in, in Greek politics, it really means, um, it's this is all encompassing term. They don't actually have a written constitution. It's, it's, right. um, it's their, kind of like their way of life. They have the best mm -hmm. like national character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one thing I found interesting in uh, Anabasis that uh, anytime, because I don't, didn't know any of the names until that book, like anytime there was a Spartan, he was put in charge. And that was even in the dialogue, like, oh, you're the Lacedaemon, obviously you're going to be the leader. Right. Whereas like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, you're just from a certain country, you're immediately better than everyone. At least when it comes to war. Yeah. Yeah. And they know, uh, in Denophon's formulation, they know better than any of the Greeks both how to follow and how to lead, um, which he sees as the two sides of the same coin. Um, and that's what they get from their agoge, which literally means the leading. This is what their education system is titled. So mm -hmm. it's okay. in their blood. I have a big fun question that maybe is more relevant now given the state of the world, or maybe people have always thought that, but you know, with the thoughts, you know, speculations of hyperinflation and maybe changing borders, this is maybe a more real question. If you were to redesign, let's say Western society or the United States, or just a hypothetical country, looking at things like Solon's version of Athens and Lycurgus of Sparta, do you have any thoughts of what you would consider the happiest medium? Well, if I were a Greek, I'll give a kind of a piecemeal answer. I think that the thing that would stand out to, to me the most, if I were a Greek, about our society is our education system and how, how strange it is that we don't separate education by genders anymore we we've gotten away from that very recently i think um and uh you know having uh, you know one kind of training for boys and one kind of training for girls would be just kind of a no-brainer for somebody like like Kyrgyz and Solon if i were a greek um so and you know from that you get in their eyes a proper orientation of like a like a like an intelligible concept of what virtue is um, that is inevitably going to be gender specific. You know, women need to look to women. They tend to look to women. I mean, just like you could, you could easily find examples of this, how, you know, like women influencers have women audiences, men influencers tend to have men audiences, especially in the personal development realm, especially when it's like about how, how should I live my life? It's really, these things are very gender specific and education has so much to do with transmission of values as well as transmission of you know skills and knowledge so um and you know so having more hierarchy in the education might be worthwhile having i don't know more physical training that's another thing that we're really just terrible at in western education is we just don't take physical education seriously and that's most of what greek education was i mean these people are brilliant right like you read you read thucydides and you're like god this guy has brains coming out of his ears he's there and there's like what is his audience like if he's writing like this and expecting people to 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 get it from hearing it in the theater like it's not that they're not smart or they don't take intellectual attainment seriously um, but they see physical training as like this basis of the life of the mind, which is another thing that I think that we, we neglect at our own peril. Um, yeah, I've always found it interesting like, reading ancient Saxon, like reading an anecdote of Thucydides wrestling in between something or, or Socrates was wrestling so-and-so, wrestling Alcibiades or whoever was his student. You know, it's just like part of it's just thrown in there as an obvious detail. You yeah. eat, you sleep, you wrestle. Yeah. And they're, their first <clears throat> education system, uh, not system, their first like location for education is the gymnasium. Like you read the dialogues of Plato and it's often set in a gym, in a gymnasium, which is an outdoor training area. Um, but the, that because why at a gymnasium? Well, people are training. They want to train their body and you know, they have to take a break. So, Maybe they'd be interested in training their minds too while they're there. It's also a place where men hang out and talk about 
serious matters, size each other up, talk about what's, you know, who's recently had a great string in the war or at the Olympic Games. It's just like, it's, it's the natural environment to start talking to people about personal development, virtue, philosophy, money management, slave ma- management, you know, like management, leadership. It's just, that's where people are already talking about this. The place where men go to go train physically foremost. That's actually why I think uh, conversational podcasts that you've mentioned, like these long form, are so uh, absorbable because that it, it mimics like the campfire chat or like the mm-hmm. gym chat. Like you listen to Joe Rogan, he's not going so deep, but he's talking like you would at the gymnasium. And it's just like so, it's just like a natural way to take in information, I feel like. Yeah, it's that's programmed into us for tens of thousands of years, I'm sure, just like learning through through hearing other people having conversations. It's just so natural. Um, and it's one of the reasons I think that intellectual discourse is moving away from academia onto these kind of decentralized spaces that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so speaking of uh, speaking, uh, I know you're, you're, you have a workshop or a retreat coming up about rhetoric. And uh, my brief history, historical understanding of modern personal development that you know, that's a pretty recent term. I don't think anyone was using it until I'm guessing the 90s, maybe the 80s. Mm-hmm. It was called self-help. You know, back in Dale Carnegie's day of the early 1900s, it was just called leadership training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just speaking. And it was basically just speaking. Like Toastmasters was one of the first, like, uh, you know, big, uh, what we would call personal development uh, groups. So can you speak a little bit about Greek rhetoric and how that was seen as a way to develop someone kind of in total. And then I, yeah, I would love to hear about your retreat as well. Yeah. Thanks. I'll, uh, I'll plug it real quick. Thanks for mentioning it. It's uh, we're going to Rome in July and it's for a week and uh, you can go to ancientlifecoach.com slash retreat. So I'll just get that out of the way. Uh, but basically I, in my research realized that Rhetoric is the really the backbone of kind of personal development thinking in ancient culture and ancient Greek and Roman culture. And it's really leadership training is, is what is what rhetoric is. So partly it's because speaking and, and rhetoric means the art of speaking. That's where the word comes from. It's not like um, tricky words or or, uh, you know. It has kind of negative connotations, I think, today, but that that's all it is. So partly because the the speaking is really important in collectively run societies, like especially in Athens, where you can't hire a lawyer, you have to defend your own interests in law courts. So there's a lot of demand for people helping you to get an edge and speaking. Uh, but also, it's all, you can lever up in society by speaking well in the assembly uh, and the democratic assembly, you know, you might have to address troops. So you can see how these things would be important skills in a, especially in a semi-literate world before social media, but rhetoric, the way that they ended up teaching it, they, it took them a lot of trial and error to figure out what's the best way to train people to speak. And the system that they end up settling on, system in a very loose sense, it's not, it's decentralized, right? It's it's culture, is emulating great speakers and great writers. And so their whole, the whole literary part of their education, of course, they're doing physical training too, but when they get down to writing and teaching you how to speak and think even, most of the education system is reading great texts and trying to kind of riff off of them or reading great speeches and trying to give your own version of that speech. There's this element of uh, imitation, mimesis, that they don't see as as like um, a negative concept at all. It's a positive concept. And and it's it's not just a, speak, a, a training in how to speak and write, but how to become like the person that you are emulating at the same time. So it's highly ethical 
um, and a hot, very much about kind of a, a, a different um, mode from history, but also like similar goals. Like you're trying to just cram your mind with examples of successful people pulling it off and trying to do that with your speeches in the courtroom or in the assembly or with your family. And I think that that spirit is something that we've really lost in our education system. Like imitating great examples is just, that's just not the order of the day in, in the in a typical university or high school. Like we don't, you know, you have to, it's all about finding your own voice and expressing yourself or critical criticizing the um, accepted narratives. And I think at the end of the day, like, imitation has been popular in edu in America. Well, sorry, in, in Western education up until like the 1960s and, and to some extent beyond, but there's a reason that it's the norm of what education, especially ed education and how to speak and how to, and how to lead, um, secondarily, there's a reason it's a norm is because it really works. And some people are rediscovering this now. It's, um, but yeah, I, I, I want to bring this idea back and, uh, because I think it really, I feel a little bit cheated of the way that I spent so much time, wasted time in my own like youth. And I could have been doing a lot more just copying out a speech of, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln and then trying to write my own and, um, or, you know, Jeff Bezos, or there's a lot of really effective speakers. You know, it's not just politics it's business too. And you learn, you learn a way of thinking as you copy this out. And I think that that, that's how I think ancient rhetoric is a lot, you know, I think it, it is a, a set of tools that can teach you to be a much more effective writer and speaker, but it's also about like, it's like a self help or personal development, like habit mindset hack that I've used in all kinds of occasions just to, you know, just get a better result in a situation rather than thinking, how would I do it? I, I think, how would, you know, X person that I think is better than me do it. And, you know, your brain just kind of like things start to click when you, when you, when you adapt that mindset in a situation, um, you know, how would, how would, you know, John Coltrane play this riff on the jazz sax? Like if just, just like thinking about it like that actually will, will get your subconscious working very effectively. Um, it's how we're programmed. I think as humans. Yeah. Cause especially when you read someone's words, you are you are thinking their thoughts. You're right. thinking the exact thoughts that they once thought a refined version. And I'm actually noticing this with this. I'm doing this like samurai lifestyle challenge, which is why I'm reading all of these samurai texts. Cool. And I started by reading about the life of Mushashi by historian with his conjecture and stuff. And I didn't feel like Mushashi. I felt like a fanboy of Mushashi as opposed to actually reading his writing where I, now I'm actually feeling like him for a moment because I even though I don't un actually even understand some of his cryptic statements and this is how I feel with all ancient texts but I am following his thought pattern for a moment and that that's like almost an absorption of a little bit of ethos I think yeah yeah and uh and the way that they write just like the style that somebody writes in conveys a lot of character and it's one of the actually the, the ancient Greek literary terms for like if you wanted to say he writes in a nice style. You could say he has a nice ethos or ethos. It's like literally the word for character is like writing style. And it you know, something of like the person's essence comes through just from their writing, you know, and, uh, and that can be really powerful. Could you actually explain ethos, logos, pathos? Cause I might have a, an incorrect understanding of them. So Aristotle's, um, Aristotle's a student Plato, he writes the first systematic treatise on rhetoric called the rhetoric and he says there are three main categories that you can use of, of three main categories of speech that rhetoric focuses on that are persuasive to people there are three basic modes to persuade people with one is you know ethos one is logos one is pathos ethos is character logos is reason and pathos is emotion. And so he says you can focus on 
um, well, so the idea is you could you could you could focus on producing emotions in somebody. That's pathos. How do we get the person to feel what we want them to feel, whether it's indignation or joy, elation? And he has this whole long section on the emotions, actually, in book two. Fascinating. It's like the first psychological treatise, partly. Then you've got ethos, and that is your character. How can you convey with your speech what kind of person you are? And he says those two are the most effective. Probably ethos is the most effective. Like most of all is who do they think you are? That's going to be the most convincing thing that you can do is present yourself in a way that you have their interests in mind. I think there are three components he lists. You have to convince them that A, that you're a good man, uh, B, that you know what you're talking about, and C, that you actually have your have their interests in mind, that that you want what's good for them. Because you could be any one of those. You could be a good man and know what you're talking about, but be their enemy, right? Um, for example. So so that's ethos. And, and then logos is just all the arguments. It's like formal logic. It's, you know, appeals to, you know, um, you know, there, uh, all the kind of categories of logic, uh, like kinds of arguments that you can come up, come up with. You know, is this expedient? Is this just? Stuff like that is logos. And he says people, like you have to have that, but, but if you don't have ethos and pathos, it's not going to matter. Um, that logos is the most important, and he's thinking of this the law court environment, and he's thinking of the assembly environment. Really, it's very like in person kind of rhetorical experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's so relevant to say the online arguments yeah. of today, where people are bringing up their own facts and figures and, and stuff, but really everyone's choosing their opinion based on emotions and what credible person they're following. Yeah, almost always, including myself. Same, same, same. Like I only want to follow people that I agree with. <laughs> they were going to dunk on the people I want to see dunked on. Um, and that's, that's like, that's ethos and pathos. That's like most of persuasion. Right. And, uh, any, any ad man could tell you that probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we don't really, I don't know. We don't, we don't uh, like or, order our, our education system around it. Like they did. Mm-hmm. Cool. So one last question for you. Favorite Plutarch's life life yeah it's a tough one i i came to really like sulla when i was writing the life of sulla sulla is this roman uh politician that plutarch pairs because he writes he pairs it with lysander he, he writes these pairs of you know greeks and romans that he thought were similar and for some reason he pairs sulla with lysander of Sparta and Sulla is uh, like this famous villain in Roman history who uh, was one of the participants of the first Roman civil war and ends up winning the civil war and the most, the, the bloodiest civil war that any ancient state had ever experienced. I mean, hundreds of thousands of, you know, civil like brothers killing brothers kind of, lives lost and then after he wins he orders the execution of another several thousand people uh that were his enemies that survived the war it's called the proscriptions and so understandably maybe that was a mistake in the long run in the short run politically but he's this just blood-curdling kind of villain in roman history and I found him just to be a fascinating figure, much more... I thought it would be hard to write a story because he's this villain and you're supposed to like the character that... I think I think part of biography is liking the person on some level or appreci- admiring them on some level. There's an emulative aspect. I was like, how can I do this with Sulla, who I find to be so you know, morally distasteful? But at the end of the day, you know, he, he really... Um, he was, uh, you know a fan of the stage he was really interested in um spectacle he really had a strong sense of justice actually and i kind of came to see that that a lot of what drove him was this sense of what was just for the roman state and i I wouldn't necessarily agree that 
you should um, punish your enemies in such a, uh, a a brutal manner. But he he was just an incredible achiever of just daring and like he he goes and he goes to Greece and the Roman state is like an open civil war after he leaves they they say they're going to cut off the funds and he's going to have to fight this war on behalf of Rome while Rome considers him a public enemy and he goes and fights and wins the war without their help and then he comes back and conquers them it's just it's so like jaw-droppingly like hard to do what he did and then he felt that he was the savior of the Roman state um, so it's an amazing like Hollywood story, but also there's a lot to admire about like he's a long term thinker. You know, he doesn't um, he's he's always like getting um, doing favors for people, never asking anything in return. It's not because he's an altruist. It's because he's a very, very long term thinker about his life and his career. Um, just from from an early age, he's just always like going the extra mile for people. And it's going to take him decades, but eventually he's going to call in a lot of favors and in a big way. And that's fascinating. And it's it's kind of a risky practice. And he finds mentors that he ends up turning on. This is like encapsulates a lot of what I find really fascinating about ancient men is how endless, you know, in the political sphere, you, you your mentors become your your rivals often Gaius Marius is great. Nemesis is starts off as his mentor. So I, that's, that's probably my favorite story that I've done so far part, partly because he converted me along the way when um, I thought that he would be hard to write, but in, in, in the end, I just end up kind of like loving him despite his, his, his kind of brutal brutality. Yeah, actually in fiction, I love when something in television specifically when a villain is done really well. And like you're just so fascinated by them, like Breaking Bad is one of the big ones, but also as many other examples. Cool. Well, I'm going to listen to that one next. I actually skipped that over. I skipped that one because I never heard of him. So <laughs> he almost killed Julius them. Caesar as a boy. Julius Caesar <laughs> is uh, like resists him in this in this important moment. Like Sulla's murdering all of his enemies after he wins the civil war, and and Julius Caesar's you know he he tells the kid to do something. He's like, Caesar, divorce your wife. I want you to marry someone else. And Caesar's like, no, screw you. And Sulla's like, all right, you want to play that way? And and he's about to like have this kid executed. And, and the and the his friends are like, Sulla, he's just a boy. He's only seventeen or eighteen. And Sulla says, you're fools if you don't see many Mariuses in that kid. <laughs> and and you know, so he spares Caesar and uh, ends up Caesar ends up kind of becoming his own kind of figure like that. So yeah, it's, it's a great story. Um, that's, that's Sulla. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having this conversation. Uh, it's fun. Uh, people can find you cost of glory on all the podcasting apps. Yeah. Yeah. Find the cost of glory. We still have spaces on the retreat. If anybody's interested, um, check that out. Ancientlifecoach.com slash retreat. I love what you're doing. I, I think, you know, looking into history, the history of masculinity is just like, it's so timely and important. And so, yeah, it's really a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Thanks, Alex. Yeah.